Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the September edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Jeffrey Trailer, and I'm a resident at UT Southwestern Medical Center, and I'll be the moderator for today's discussion. Today, we'll be talking about the article, Robustness of Randomized Control Trials Supporting Current Neurosurgery Guidelines. And I'll start by introducing the author and, and some of the guest faculty. Dr. Zinn, would you mind introducing yourself for everyone? Yeah, my name is Pascal Zinn. I'm one of the uh, brain tumor and spine tumor faculty at UPMC. And uh, really, you know, great you guys invited me here uh, to talk about our paper. Credit goes really to Farouk, uh, the uh, brilliant postdoc who did most of the work. Of course, thank you. And today we're joined by guest faculty, Dr. Nader Paradian. Dr. Paradian, would you mind introducing yourself for us? <clears throat> Great, thanks for uh, including me. Nader Paradian, I'm professor and chair of uh, neurosurgery at UT Southwestern, uh, but also possibly relevant to this discussion, I was the previous chair of the guidelines committee for the CNS, so I read this article with great interest. Uh, I think guidelines are critical to our clinical practice, so understanding what affects our outcomes is or our interpretations is really critical. So looking forward to this. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And then uh, Dr. Huang, I think most of our listeners are familiar with your, are familiar with you at this point, but would you mind introducing yourself for us? Sure. I'm Kimberly Huang and I'm at Emory University. I have a practice primarily in tumors. It's good to see everyone again. Thank you so much. All right, well, uh, Dr. Zinn, to start us off, would you mind just giving us a brief overview of your, uh, of your article for us? Yeah, of course. So I think this is really important work in a way because it, it's a new angle in terms of metrics for clinical trials. We're not very familiar with a, a robustness metric beyond what we usually you know, know how to interpret somewhat or we thought we would know, meaning p-value, confidence intervals, like number needing to treat and, uh, and, and so on. So ultimately it occurred to us that I think most people probably don't understand those metrics. What does it tell you when a p-value is 0 0.005? You know, How do you interpret what that actually means if you're not a master statistician? And you know, what is the confidence interval? What is the power of a trial? These are all metrics that probably most of us, uh, I would say, don't actually know what it means in terms of what does it mean for the patient and the number of patients uh, needed to reach significance? So we were, you know, I was intrigued when uh, Farouk came to me, we talked about the idea of measuring robustness and applying a known entity such as the fragility index to the neurosurgical literature and guidelines. So fragility index or robustness of clinical trials, this was already described in the 1990s. So really, you know, quite some time ago, and it has been applied to some of the, um, you know, fields outside of neurosurgery, but really it hasn't, you know, gained any traction within our field. So 
what we set out to do is we just wanted to start with neurosurgical guidelines that are you know, based on papers that are reported on uh, CNS, AANS websites. And out of about 312 RCTs that are listed there, we ultimately were able to extract uh, this metric fragility index from about 120 studies. And the paper discusses those metrics. You know, it's important to know what the fragility index is or the robustness of clinical trials. It's really, it, it's interesting. It's, it's ultimately, you know, kind of easy to understand, I would say. So FI or fragility index is the number of patients needed that need to flip from a, a event to a non-event arm. Um, meaning if a patient is in the experimental group in the uh, randomized trial, let's say there's a hundred patients in the experimental group and let's say there is, uh, of those patients, let's say uh, 50 reach endpoint and 50 don't reach it. And if you increase then the number of patients that reach the endpoint by one, meaning 51, and then in the other uh, arm, there is 49. You do this until you flip the uh, significance essentially, or you invalidate the trial. So. In other words, FI is the number of patients that need to be flipped between the two arms and moved from one arm to another arm to invalidate the trial. And some of those numbers are alarmingly low, meaning if the fragility index is low, it means that very few patients need to be flipped to invalidate the trial. And I think the main takeaway from the paper is that across all the trials analyzed, we have a median of seven patients across all those trials that make up our current guidelines that need to be flipped to invalidate those trials. And what is even more alarming, I would say, is that some trials don't report patients lost to follow-up. So we came up with this metric and we alluded to that in the article that in fact, measuring the fragility index, meaning the patients that need to flip to invalidate the trial, minus perhaps the patients lost to follow-up, could be really a, a novel metric uh, for robustness. Think about it. Let's say a trial has 200 patients and five need to flip to invalidate the trial, meaning an FI of five for that trial with 200 patients. But there's perhaps 10 patients that were lost to follow-up. So think about it. If 10 patients are lost to follow-up, but it only needed five to flip, I think it's really up in the air what the trial significance overall is. And another important finding, I think, um, that we report in this article is that the fragility index over time does increase. So the trials are becoming more robust, particularly since 2010. And I think really that's that's sort of the main main message of this. Uh, at this point, we're working on a follow-up trial focusing on mostly neuro-oncology trials and Kaplan-Meier curves, and uh, we're we're ready to report those results soon. And uh, it, it, as well, interesting findings, of course. So I think more and more studies will apply this perhaps to the neurosurgical literature. Thank you very much for that summary. Um... 
I think that we can start with the discussion with some of our guests here. Uh, Dr. Pradian, do you have any questions for Dr. Zen about that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's new to our field of neurosurgery. I want us to maybe try and make more sense of what these values actually mean. And I have, I guess, two uh, somewhat related questions. But uh, first, I think, you know, based on the discussion, you know, our number of seven actually is pretty good compared to other fields, right? I mean, can you comment on how we're performing, you know, uh, compared to trauma, anesthesia, some sports surgery trials, um, and where we are in neurosurgery? Uh, and then I have a, another question about that as well. Yeah, I, interestingly, as we mentioned also in the paper, there is no real cutoff reported what is, you know, what is a robust uh, trial versus a non-robust trial based on FI. But certainly seven seems to be slightly better than some of the, uh, let's say, venous thromboembolism trials. Uh, some of the other surgical trials, most of those trials report an FI from, you know, between two and five, but also don't report, for the most part, don't report their patients lost to follow-up. And another metric that is really important is, I would say, the percentage of FI over the entire patient population in the trial, which I think we kind of underreported in this paper. And it's something that perhaps matured kind of in our own views a little bit more and we're going to report on that but it is sometimes shocking that there can be you know some sometimes 500 patients in a trial and it, it needs really like single digit patients to flip to invalidate it so meaning you know sometimes less than one percent of patients um you know fi is like you know less than one percent of the entire population and and that is kind of worrisome but i would i would agree with you that there is, there is much worse examples in the literature than, than what we found here, yeah. And over time, those improve. So that's hope also, I think, that we're doing better and better. Yeah, so you beat me to the next question, which was, you know, I, I think an FI of seven, meaning seven patients to flip from one to another in a trial of 20 patients, which some surgical trials can be that small, is very different than seven patients out of a trial of 500 patients. And so I think denominating it uh, seems like it would be valuable, right? I, I absolutely agree, yeah. Of course, in the FI calculation, the number, the total number of patients is, is a part of, it's already accounted for, but I think it's important to, to report it. Um, one third of the trials that we analyzed had an FI of three or less. And then some trials that report patients lost to follow-up, like it can even essentially go into minus if you have, let's say, an FI of three, but you have five patients lost to follow-up. That's kind of a, a, a minus trial, which I think that that's where it starts becoming a little bit worrisome, I would say. Yeah. And I guess the other comment I'll make is, you know, when we think about clinical trials, it is an interesting idea to think about, well, what if patients flipped and the loss to follow up, which I think are outstanding points. But ideally, a clinical trial is setting up the hypothesis and testing in advance. So we have to have some confidence in our results. And, you know, as you talked about power, um, 
it seems like there should be some consideration of the effect size also, because you know having, uh, again, let's just say five to seven patients flip on a trial that only had a marginal effect size, seems like it's a much bigger deal than five to seven patients who had a significant effect size from whatever the intervention should be. So I don't know, how do you think we're ultimately going to consider all these different variables? Um, you know, these are all great points, of course, and um, this paper is not the answer, you know, to everything. It's just an additional metric, and we perhaps have too many metrics, but uh, I think it's certainly a combination of everything. I, I do think, though, if we had a metric like, let's say, number needed to treat, right, is very intuitive. We need to do a carotid endarterectomy in so many patients to help, you know, one patient. That's a number everybody understands. FI is a number everybody understands. Um, so let's say in brain tumors, the interim analysis of the um, Optune trial. So we, you know, this is all new data. This is unpublished now at this point, but we're going to come out with this paper. The interim analysis of the Optune trial had 315 patients. And an FI, as we calculated it, is actually between one and two patients. And the full analysis had 695 patients, I believe. And the FI went from one between one and two to nine. So that really added, added robustness, still relatively low overall, but I think it's, it's a metric that is very palpable to about anybody. And we understand together with the p-value and the confidence interval, I think, what to make out of it. At, at least to me, it, it changed the way how I look at trials. Now I'm asking my postdoc the whole time if a new trial comes out, hey, you know, tell me please what the FI is for this trial he's going and calculates it. So um, it's an additional metric that I find very intuitive. Absolutely, and I, I think it's uh, it just emphasizes that we really, shouldn't just be looking at the p-value and the result. We really have to look at the actual results and uh, the interpretation and make sure that uh, we make sense of it from a practical standpoint. Uh, if someone else wants to jump in and ask any questions. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, Pascal, it's good. You could stir the pot as a tumor person for the Optune thing, just start around a little bit more for all the neurosurgical oncology um, since there's so much controversy there. So. Go ahead. That was that was great. Um, a great way to keep that conversation going. But I guess um, you know, we actually have two really good people to ask this question here, both Dr. Paradian and um, Dr. Zinn. Um, you know, we talk about all these metrics now about how to evaluate clinical trials, and obviously, a lot of us are on guidelines committees. And Dr. Paradian was the former chair of you know the um, guidelines for our field. And so, you know, what metrics maybe looking forward? in your guys' opinion, should we really be focusing on? Is it FI? Should we keep doing the things we've been doing um, as we currently have to pick out the best trials? Is there a way we can improve our process? Those take a lot of work. Um, and so I just want to maybe get your guys' thoughts on that situation. I think we partially perhaps answered some of that question already by it's never kind of black and white, it's always multifactorial and none of those metrics are perfect by themselves. Like p-value is really, really flawed, right? And it, it, 
we all know from like, let's say large database analyses, uh, let's say the SEER database, uh, we published a paper, you know, a couple of years back with like 20 some thousand patients in GBM. And, you know, whatever you look at any type of outcome, you, you have a p-value of 0. 0.00000, whatever, a bunch more zeros and then a one. So highly, highly significant, but maybe the survival difference is like, you know, a couple days, right? So the more, the, the higher number you have is not always better. Interestingly, we always think the higher powered something is, like the more robust it, it is. It's perhaps more robust, but the result might be highly significant, but meaningless. So I'm just starting to understand sometime, somehow what those numbers mean. And if you look at the extremes, like in this example, like higher number, you know, probably lower confidence interval, right? Less, you know, variability because you have a higher N is not necessarily better because it shows you something is significant that is meaningless. I think I would uh, follow on on that, that, you know, a lot of what we do in the guidelines committee is not just, as I said earlier, look at the abstract and results, but really look at the quality of the study, the design of the study, and the outcomes. And it's not just a matter when we're developing guidelines of looking at the results, but asking questions that are clinically pertinent and determining whether that RCT and its results move the needle in answering that those questions. Um, you know, if you look at guidelines, it's it's not just a summary of RCTs, uh, and so it, it is this you know idea that we've all learned over time that statistical significance doesn't equal clinical significance, and it seems like this uh, FI or fragility index really sheds yet a different light on how we uh, interpret these studies. And I think it shows that over time trials are becoming better as we're just more skilled, I think more collaborative in the digital era kind of to, you know, design multi-center trials that just include more patients that are run, you know, in a more, I think, sound fashion and and with, with increasingly, you know, expert experts involved, I would say. Yeah, it was encouraging in your findings of your paper that, you know, over time we've gotten better, right? So we haven't stayed stagnant in the quality of, a, at least with regard to FI, and hopefully as we've continued to refine our guidelines, which to Dr. Paradian's point, asking the right question for guidelines that's actually clinically relevant, which the leaders of the guidelines do, um, I think helps us as neurosurgeons a lot, for sure. I also think design of the trial, as uh, Dr. Paradian mentioned, is, is extremely important. Like, expert design analysis and interpretation and uh, you know we are experts and and we have to kind of give give a value to a trial also perhaps sometimes not directly related to those metric numbers but also we have to balance it with our experience and and, and design is very important absolutely absolutely dr trailer any questions from you yeah, I wanted to follow up on um, you know something Dr. Pradian said a little earlier and talking about how neurosurgery compares um, to other fields, but rather within neurosurgery, I know this study focused on cerebrovascular disease, neuro-oncology, 
Are there any subspecialties of neurosurgery that are more or less conducive to, to clinical trials? Are there some that are more susceptible to low fragility index? Our spine is, you know, a really big discipline in our field, and uh, there it hasn't really been applied to neurosurgery spine. Um, I expect some of those trials have slightly more patients than vascular and tumor neurosurgery trials. So I expect FI to be somewhere you know, in, in a similar area to perhaps maybe slightly higher, depending on, on the trial. Actually, something else I wanted to mention also is we also were looking at, uh, these are significant trials we looked at here. So we're also looking at trials that are non-significant and interestingly, they also demonstrate some non-significant trials demonstrate a very low FI. So there goes the thought, right? Like, had it, you know, had been less patients lost to follow up in some of those trials, would they be significant? And with what FI? So it's just an interesting thought experiment to think about that. And we're analyzing that uh, that at this point. And that is just something I think. What I'm also interested in, and we don't have that data yet, is to compare FI averages uh, for significant and non-significant trials. So that could tell you that I would expect a, a, a bell curve there. But if there is no bell curve, then you know we have to reconsider how those are analyzed. And perhaps there's some bias there uh, with significant and non-significant trials that I'm, I'm curious to you know to show. Do we have any idea? Sorry. No, go ahead. Do we have any idea through maybe the history of neurosurgery or in other medical subspecialties um, whether studies with low FI are likely to be quote unquote debunked in subsequent trials or uh, for practice to be changed? So, does it have any prognostic value in terms of how robust the findings will be in terms of their impact on practice? That's a great question. Um, we we have not looked into that. Um, Don't go write a paper now. That's my idea. You, you can. Well, we'll put you on the paper. <laughs> we'll write it together. Um, you know that I can say as much that you know we looked at. I think it's over seventy neurooncology trials now, because at this at the time of analysis for this paper, we were not able to extract FI from Kaplan-Meier curves. So th this is a big limitation of this paper because it underrepresents the neuro-oncology trials clearly. Uh, th this is heavily focused, I would say, on neurovascular neurosurgery. But, uh, but we're able to actually, we developed a technique to extract FI from Kaplan-Meier curves, which also allows actually to publish mega meta-analyses from across all the Kaplan-Meier curve trials. So we're able to extract the primary data from, you know, through a technique we developed. And we can publish meta-analysis of all those trials now. Like we can just group it all together. And there's interesting, you know, stuff coming out. But what I just, as an example, showed the interim analysis had an extremely low FI, like of the Optune trial. And then it becomes more and more robust as it's matured and the final results are published. So I think based on the interim analysis of that example, one would just, you know, thought the whole thing will be debunked. And then FI, you know, goes quite significantly up. 
But as a comparison, like the Stoop trial, the 2005 trial had an FI of 17. So that seems a little bit more robust than, than other trials. Thank you. I had one other question I wanted to follow up with. Um, you know, you were talking about how after publishing this paper that you're calculating the FI for new trials that are coming out is, it seems like that might be difficult for a neurosurgeon or a clinician of any kind reading these trials to do. Is there a shorthand way or is there any sort of, uh, you know, you, you said that sample size didn't necessarily predict um, robustness there, but as we read these trials, what's a good uh, takeaway for us to interpret them? without think, going back and calculating that. Also in this paper, there were a lot of multi-center trials, very few single-center trials. So that data may not accurately reflect that relationship. But in our follow-up analysis, we clearly show that a higher sample size, multi-national, you know, multi-institutional trials have tend to have a higher FI. So there is a relationship there. Um, well, what, what was your other question? Oh. Um... That I wanted to follow up actually, since you bring that up. Um, so was there an explanation for why the multi-institutional trials were more robust if sample size was not the predictor? Actually, I think it ends up being a predictor and we showed it in our follow-up study. This was just not significant. There was a trend on that one in this yeah. data set. Yeah, I see. Okay, well, um, I think that's a good place to stop. I think we're running out of time. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Pascal Zinn, our guest uh, author, and then our guest faculty, Dr. Nadir uh, Paradian, for joining us for this. Um, I would just like to remind everyone that this podcast activity is available to claim for 1.5 uh, CME and is complimentary to all CNS members through the online education catalog. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in, and we hope that you'll join us for the next Journal Club podcast.